My name is David. Some call me the Goliath killer or the king of Israel. I call myself a broken man, but one who's been given far more than I deserve. Early on, I thought I was just lucky. After a few years working as a shepherd, I landed a job playing harp in King Saul's palace. This led to my fateful win over Goliath and a promotion to general. With each military victory, my fame increased. Saul grew jealous and tried to kill me with a spear, but I escaped to the countryside. The mad ruler pursued me relentlessly with assassins and armies. Somehow, I survived. God was looking out for me. When Saul died, I took the throne, and God supported me with a team of super warriors to fight for peace. These mighty men were skilled, valiant, and remarkably loyal. They demonstrated their character many times. One such day, the Philistines had us cornered in a valley. Outmanned, we took cover in a cave to revise our strategy. Exhausted, I slumped against a wall and sighed, I'd love a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem. It was just a little nostalgia for home, a pointless craving. Without me knowing, three of my mighty men overheard this and left our garrison. The trio fought through the Philistine army for many miles, finally arriving at the waterhole. The soldiers returned and presented the water to me. It took a moment to comprehend what they'd done. These servants, hearing an offhand comment from their king, had risked life and limb to give me a simple refreshment. The level of dedication, the depth of love, the costly sacrifice they exhibited moved me to tears. I stuttered, Who am I to deserve such devotion? Overcome with gratitude, I gathered the men and poured out the liquid as an offering to God. I prayed, Far be it from me, Lord, that I should drink this water. Its value is equal to the blood of the men who risked their very lives to get it. I don't think I fully understood God's love for me until that day. During my reign, we beat the Philistines and achieved peace. Outwardly, I had all the trappings of success, but like so many with power, I abused it. Lust and paranoia led me to do unthinkable things. Broken with shame, I wept before God, confessing my mistakes with no expectation that he would ever hear my prayers. Yet, with astonishing grace, he poured it over me, time and time again, like that refreshing flask of water from the well at Bethlehem. morning. If you have high hopes, I think you're in the right place today. I actually think that there's something built into all of us that when you hear a song like that or you hear a story like that, it moves something in you. You get to the end of it and you think, I want to be like that. I want to build a legacy. I want to do something amazing. I want to be something great. And maybe to use the language that we've been using in this series, I want to be lion-hearted. This idea that even when there are obstacles standing in my way, I can see something, and that something matters to me. That something matters to my family. It matters to my company. It matters to people I care about. And I am going to do that thing, and I'm not going to let anything stand in my way. 
You know, in the pages of the Bible that we've seen in the last few weeks, as we've talked about these men, these warriors, the word that's used has been mighty. Now, I don't know how you feel about God or Jesus or the Bible. When I read this book, in fact, the part that we're going to look at today is, a, is about a paragraph. It's, it's this little bit right here. And whenever I read something like that, there's sort of like, okay, now I guess I know what happened. Am I I supposed to do something with that? Am I supposed to just know that thing? And so I'm always asking myself, of all of the pages that God could have written, of all of the paragraphs that God could have put in here, why this paragraph? Why this event? Why did this need to get recorded in history? And then is there something in that for me? Is there an example for me to follow there? Or, Or maybe an example for me not to follow? And so the historical event that we're hearing about today, we just heard a little bit in that audio, is this idea that David has these mighty men, some of history's greatest warriors ever recorded, who are doing feats of strength that they literally could not do on their own without God's power. And here, they break through enemy lines, get a drink of water for David, bring it back to their king, and if it stops right there, you say, wow, these are mighty men doing mighty acts. But the story doesn't stop there because then David dumps it on the ground. Excuse me, what? (laughs) Did did I not tell you how hard that was to get? Well, I'm going to propose that David's act is also a mighty act. That there are actually three mighty acts going on in this story. But to understand that third one, we actually need to understand the first two. So let's look at our passage. This actually comes from a page in the Bible out of a book of history called 2 Samuel. It's chapter 23, and we're starting with verse 13, where it says this. Then three of the thirty chief men. So these are not just mighty men. These are the mightiest of the mighty. Three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Now, I don't know if geography is your strong suit or not, but I know these are like some weird geographical places. We'll get there. Hang with me. David was then in the stronghold. So he's in that cave. And the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. I bet you've heard of that one. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Now the reason that, of of all the geographical places mentioned here, Bethlehem is the one you're probably familiar with, is because Bethlehem is where Jesus was born. And so that tiny town has become like the most famous place in all of history because Jesus Christ was born there. But this moment where we are in 2 Samuel is hundreds of years before Jesus was born. At this moment, Bethlehem is just becoming famous because it was the hometown of King David, the man who we are hearing about today, whose voice you just heard record that story. So David's home was Bethlehem. That's why it becomes significant that later King Jesus also comes from Bethlehem. And so this moment, this kind of offhanded remark, as David is facing an enemy and longs for something. He longs for something simpler, something sweeter, something from back home. From a time when he remembers that things were good and things were simple. I didn't have all these headaches and these wars and these battles to worry about. And so it's both a combination of of something really good that he wants, but also nostalgia. And you know how strong those can be when they come together, right? 
Like, this is David's Citizen Kane moment. If you've seen that movie, at the beginning of the movie, when Citizen Kane says, Rosebud. And like the whole movie, what's Rosebud? We gotta get him Rosebud. How do we? And it's not until the end of the movie that you realize Rosebud was the name of the sled that he rode when he was a child. A symbol of something more clean, more simple. Did I just spoil that for you? I know, that's like one of those ones, but guys, that came out like 100 years ago, so I think you're kind of on your... You know what Soylent Green is, right? Okay, I won't spoil that for you, but don't eat it. Okay. This is his Citizen Kane moment, that thing that he's longing for. But right now, he's stuck in the cave of Adullam. And this is one of those cool places where you realize that the Bible is not like myth and fairy tale... Because I can show you a picture of the cave of Adullam. This is a real place that you can still go today. We know where this is, partly because the Bible is so careful with this geography. So about 13 miles out of Bethlehem is this cave. And the the enemy, it describes, was encamped basically between here and Bethlehem with a garrison then stationed in Bethlehem. So David and his men are in this cave hiding out. So have you ever had high hopes or a deep longing, something that you know would be so good if you could just figure out how to wrap your arms around it. But right now it actually feels like you're sitting in the back of a cave. And you can sort of see the light in the distance, and you know Bethlehem is out there somewhere, but you're not quite sure how to get there. Well, I want you to think about that for a minute. What are your high hopes? What is it that you dream of? What is it that 10 years from now you would love to look back and be able to say, I was successful? You know, maybe you go back to a time when you were a kid and it was what you were dreaming about when you grew up. You know, all those times that you were practicing basketball in the backyard because you were hoping maybe one day you'd be the one to make the game winning shot at the buzzer. Maybe it's when you started your career. Or when you first got into the, the career that you knew you would love. The one you were willing to make sacrifices for, to invest in. Because you had a vision for something and you couldn't wait to get started. And maybe it's to be a husband, to be a wife, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a son or daughter or a friend. That you could look back and say, in this season of life, I did it. I was successful. I was mighty. Okay, have you got that in mind? Now, as you think about those things, whatever those have been in your life, whether you've achieved them or not, here's another question for you. Has anyone ever helped you achieve that goal? Think about how fondly you think of that person who helped you. In fact, as I studied for this week, I came across this story of a man named Harvey Lewis, who's actually from the Cincinnati area. And so for those of you who are runners, I played basketball, so to me running was punishment. (laughs) But I know there are people who love to run, and then there are people like Harvey Lewis. So Harvey decided that the flying pig was fun, but he wanted to to tackle the Appalachian Trail 
over 2,000 miles of trail. Now, people hike this all the time, and it usually takes them between three to six months. I think Harvey did it in 48 days. <laughs> He's going to sprint the trail. Why hike when you can sprint over rocks and up mountains and through all this stuff? But what I loved about this is this was a man who wanted to do something mighty. He wanted to set a goal. He wanted to be great, but he knew he couldn't do it alone. And so I want you to see a video that actually shows just a snippet of Harvey actually running, but it also shows somebody with him. I want you to notice that person, and then we'll talk some more. Let's watch. Hey, uh, I'll see you at 20 miles, some 12 miles from now. Why not to stop and talk to the people, huh? Just not too much. I, I think this is a, a, a once-in-a-lifetime moment for, for both of us, and it's a, it's a story that is going to resonate. So the man that you heard talking there at the end is actually Harvey's father. So what's incredible about the way that they time these trails is there are actually two different categories for the world records. So one category is what they call unassisted. That's just a runner in his backpack and he does the best that he can. The other way that they track the records is what's called an assisted run. And so that's where they would bring a team of people with them who are helping them track nutrition, who will be there at the end of each day in case an emergency happens or to offer encouragement. And so Harvey was doing an assisted run. And what's incredible is the assisted run record is literally like four days faster than the unassisted run. And so when you hear that, it's like, I mean, I get, okay, because he had help, right? So that would make sense that it would be faster but in both cases, they rest at night. In both cases, they eat at night. And yet the assisted is four days faster. Now, here's what I think is significant about that. Even when you are as high-powered, as highly focused, as highly trained as Harvey was, leaders go farther, faster, when there are other people around them who are willing to sacrifice to help them reach that goal. That's what Harvey's dad was there for. In fact, I found an interview with Harvey. He had just an incredible quote about his father. The interviewer asked him, a lot of supported attempters have a loved one head their crew as opposed to someone with a running background. Why do you think that is, and how valuable was it to have your father there day in and day out? Harvey said, with my father, I just lucked out in the biggest way. He knew I wouldn't give up, and I knew he wouldn't give up on me. He knew what I needed with nutrition, knew my physical abilities, and knew what to say to spark my heart to stay in the game. I felt comfortable with my father. He was reliable. If there was an emergency, I don't doubt my father would be the first one there, no matter the location or difficulty of the trail. I love that picture. I think that's why his dad says at the end that it's going to be a story that resonates. Because it's something they'll never forget. And actually, that's going to be our first mighty act that we see here. Because this is what David's men did for David. Sacrifice for the longing of a leader. You see, David is one of the most famous kings in all of history. And these mighty men 
all of that that we know about them fits onto like one page. But David is not David without them. It's part of why we've had so much fun kind of celebrating them in this series, learning their stories, learning what it was that God had called them to do, and how sometimes you're not the king, but you support the king. But think about this even in another way. Take the word leader out and just sacrifice for the longing of another person. Like, what if the mightiest thing that you could do is help someone else be mighty? And you think about your spouse. Think about your kids. Think about people that work for you or people that you work with. What if the mightiest thing you could do was actually to help someone else be mighty? And I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I think about that kind of stuff, it's sort of like, yeah, but I got stuff I got to work on too. And like, what, what's going to happen to me if I do that? How much is that going to cost me? Is that really going to be worth it to me? Um, I'll try to stop short of saying what's in it for me. But I'm kind of thinking that way, right? So I, I think it was helpful to me to paraphrase Martin Luther King Jr., which seems fitting this weekend. He encouraged people, instead of asking, if I help them, what will happen to me? And instead start asking, if I don't help them, What will happen to them? See, I think that's the way that these mighty men were thinking. They loved David for all of his foibles, all of his faults. If I don't help him, what will happen to David? And so these guys power up. They decide that they're going to do it. They decide they're not going to let anything stand in their way. And I think, I want to be like that. But what holds me back? Well, for them, we see in the next verse, the thing that was holding them back was the Philistines. It says in verse 16, So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. So these three mighty men decide nothing is going to stand in their way because the Philistines are not pushovers. right? This is Goliath's people. So they have giants on their side. (laughs) And these three mighty men go it alone, break through the line, get the water, and bring it back to David. See, when we think about this, the reality is, you and I, we have high hopes. Like, when I'm thinking most clearly, you know, and lately this has been just hitting me a ton about my kids, because they're, they're young enough, but they're old enough that I've started feeling like, all this wasted time, and i got to be a better dad, and how do I do that, and what does that look like, and by the time they get here, I want it to be like this, and by the time they get there, I want it to be like that. You know, and there's something in me that then I start to dream. And maybe for you in your career, in your family, in your relationships, you start to dream. But there's something that holds you back. The reality is we want to do great things, but there are enemy lines that are in our way. And those lines, those enemies don't leave on their own. Enemy lines don't fade out just because I ignore them. They don't go away if I pretend that they're not there. We have to break through. So if mighty act number one was to sacrifice for the longing of another person, mighty act number two, break through the line. Break through the line. And this isn't quite as simple as like, no pain, no gain. Because there are so many different kinds of things that can hold us back. Sometimes it is as simple as fear. I've got an idea, but is the risk too big? I want to be great, but what if I fail? What if I I don't fail exactly, but it's just kind of embarrassing to put myself out there like that? Sometimes it's simple as fear. Sometimes it's complacency. 
My wife and I can laugh about this now, but early in our marriage, there's like this, I want to be the best wife ever. That is not what she sounds like. (laughs) Sweetheart, I know you're home with sick kids. If you're streaming this, I apologize. (laughs) Right, and then there's like, I want to be the best husband ever. And she would say, well, here are some things that I think that we're not good at. I think that these are some places of pain, and I would love for us to get counseling to help us through that. Oh, I didn't want to be that great of a husband. Right, because counseling would mean I have to admit that I'm not as good as I wish I was or, or something. We, we could go on this marriage retreat. It would be awesome. Yeah, I will recommend that to other people. Right, and I think I had probably a combination of fear, combination of complacency. But, you know, sometimes we get in this place where it's like, I want to be great. And coach says, run laps. You're going to need it. Nah, never, never mind. I want to be average. I want to be good enough, coach. Listen, we've got to break through the line. Because some of what holds us back is our own complacency. Sometimes it's our own fear. Sometimes it is like, like David had, it's our personal junk that drags me down. Right? It's stuff that doesn't match up to the standard of how God has asked me to live. And then I'm over here like, God, why aren't you like opening doors and breaking free and giving me blessing and I want to see what it looks like and I want to... And God says, well, definitely, like, can we deal with your lust? Can we deal with your anger? Can we deal with the way you're always comparing yourself to other people and thinking that you're not good enough? Can we deal with some of these things? Because if I set you free from that, you're going to love how far you can go. Can we talk about your pride? Uh, later, God. Try it. Could you see? Isn't, you're God, right? Can't you do the blessing without me having to? There are lines, enemy lines, that we've got to break through you know sometimes we feel like we're working so hard to be great and i'm not even always sure i know exactly what i'm aiming for like i want to be a great dad and great dad looks like something and the way i get there is try hard in fact that's actually why we do uh, one of our group studies for men here we call authentic manhood and that's actually starting next sunday night or next Monday morning. And that's really what it's all about. A a chance for guys to get together, to build some friendships, but also to get this great teaching and this great content that says, hey, you want to be great in your career? You want to be great in your family? You want to be a great husband, great father, great friend? This is what it looks like. Here's some tools to get there. And one of the key pieces, if you can receive it, is that you actually need God's help. And he would love to help you. Like that that's why God writes this book so that we can get to know him better so that he can say, look how much I can help. You are going to be mighty and you are going to love this. And there are times that it'll be hard and there'll be lines to break through, but God wants to do great work. In fact, David and his men had all learned this. Everything that God had called them to do, he empowered them to be able to do. And David actually wrote about that in one of his journals in a place called Psalm 18, where he wrote this, For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. Yeah. Yeah, let's do that thing. Like, you and what army? That army? Don't care. By my God I run against a troop. Like, one versus an army, and you are outnumbered if God is on my side. That is what God is setting in front of you in this book. That he's saying it's a whole lot more. Like, this is what is so unique about Christianity. 
Because it's not, you go be mighty, and if it's good enough, then God says, okay, I guess I'll let you in. Instead, God says, here is my standard. You will not achieve it. However, I would love to help you. Because God can do it every time. If I'm chasing my own plans, they might fail. If I'm chasing God's plans, they will never fail. And he says he'll help me do it. So I love this verse. In fact, I think it's on your notes today that this is even worth memorizing. Just one line, but such a reminder that it's God's strength that actually makes this possible. I was talking to a friend recently, a guy that I've been in uh, some study groups with here. And, and he's become a very mature guy, so not everybody uh, speaks at this level and, and certainly doesn't have to. But as he was telling his story, he described how he was what I would think of as a mighty man. I mean, from the outside looking in, he had everything going for him. Uh, his company was successful. They were hiring. They were, you know, revenue was like doubling year on year. Everything was going fantastic. But as he tells it now, there were probably some signs that that bubble was going to burst that he was unwilling to pay attention to because he was successful. He had always been successful. He was raised and set up to be successful, and it worked. So he knew what he was doing. But the bubble did burst, and he lost just about everything. And as he was sitting in that cave, and he was struggling with depression, and he was feeling like things were dark, and like he didn't know how to get to Bethlehem from here, what he said was that he recognized with God's help, that he had a major pride issue. He had never seen it before. People thought he was a nice guy. He wasn't like one of those cocky jerks that everyone's always like, oh, this guy, get him out of here. And yet he realized he was always relying on himself and he always believed that just by his own efforts, he could make anything work. And in this season of life, God broke down his pride. He started processing things in his past that, he hadn't, that he'd been trying to ignore, things that he needed to heal about. And now as he sits here today, he would call himself a follower of Jesus. We actually baptized him right here at Horizon as a public symbol of that relationship he has with Jesus. He's got a great job now, and he's rebuilding his company. It's not where it was. But what he would tell you is that he is mightier now than he has ever been. Because back then, he looked mighty, but like this was his peak. He could push himself this far, but he had pitfalls, he had broken things that were going to keep him from ever really getting past that. But now, because of what God has taught him, like the sky is the limit. And in fact, his success is no longer just tied to how well does a company do? How good is a job? What do people think of me? His success is tied to the God who created him and created the universe who loves him no matter how many things fall apart and wants to keep teaching him and keep helping him break through those enemy lines. I don't know if you've ever hit those kinds of things, but you will. And when you do, all of us go searching for something. We can search for something to medicate us, to make us feel better and just try to push through. But that's kind of just like staying in the cave. I didn't want to be in this cave, but this is where I am. I'll just make the best of it. But if we look to God, he wants to help us break through enemy lines and become something even more mighty. That's what David's men did. They broke through. They accomplished something mighty. They got the water. They brought it back. They saved Private Ryan, notified the academy. Everybody claps and things are wonderful. End of story. We all cheer, right? Okay, I already told you. It's not the end of the story. Don't cheer yet. <laughs> this is what happens next. 
After doing this incredibly brave and dangerous thing, they bring the water to their king, and you can just imagine the smiles in their hearts. It's like, I want to see him drink it. He is going to love this. It is going to hit the spot. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. So we've seen how they were willing to sacrifice for the longing of their leader. We've seen how they break through enemy lines. Now this third thing, this moment with David, here's what's incredible about this. Because if, if I'm these guys, it's like, look, I appreciate that you're having a moment here where you feel like you don't deserve this and you shouldn't have done that. But ser- seriously, I did go through all of those Philistines at least, like, water your fern or something. Don't just pour it on the ground, right? But notice what it says. He poured it out to the Lord. So what David's doing here in their culture is actually called a drink offering. So of all the things that God had described for his people, when they come and worship him, when they come to speak to him about how good he is, how worthy he is of their praise, of their celebration, for all of these sacrifices and offerings that they would do, one of them was called a drink offering. And so what they would do is they would usually take something that was full of wine, because wine looks like blood, and blood represents life. And they would pour out the wine, essentially as a symbol of life, saying, God, this wine, like blood, represents my life. I give you thanks for my life, and I give you my life. So it's an honoring of God by thanking him and committing themselves to him is why they would do this drink offering. So what happens here when David pours this out is he's saying... On behalf of these men, I want to honor God. Now, I told you it was usually wine because that looks like blood. You you notice that David's using water, but look at how he describes it. He says, far be it from me that I should do this. Is this not the blood of their lives? So for David now, this water has become a symbol of their blood a symbol of the life that they were willing to sacrifice for their leader. And so David says, God, these men's lives I honor before you. And he pours it out. David has taken a moment that could have been selfish, a moment that would have been about his own short-term thirst and fulfillment, Not that his longing was bad, but it was all for him. And he's taken that same thing and turned it into something that honors those who sacrificed for him. He gives them the honor, even though he is the leader. That's mighty act number three. That's why you have to understand their sacrifice to understand what he's doing, because David poured out his best for the ones he leads. Mighty act number three, pour out your best for the ones you lead. Do you see the switch? At first, it is those who are serving him that sacrifice for his sake, but now it is the king who is sacrificing for his friends, for his followers. 
pouring out the absolute best thing that he had in that moment. Now for you, the best thing that you probably have, I would guess, is not a little flask of water. It may be time, it may be money, it may be emotion, it may be treasure. What is the best that you have? It may be reputation. That in this moment, David gives the honor, the reputation, the glory to other people instead of himself. I remember a number of years ago, there was a, a man named Dick Luazo. He was the uh, vice president of, the, of our region of this global organization that I was a part of. And yet, on a weekly basis, he was investing personal time into me when I was like an associate at one location in our organization. And I, I was extremely thankful for it. And I remember just thinking like, you know, why would he invest that way? But I was so committed to him as a leader, still am to this day. I love that guy because he was willing to put his time, his energy. He even took some flack from his boss. Like, you can't keep spending time on people that are like this far down, you know, on the totem pole. And he said, hey, I think this is a guy who needs it. He's responsive to it. He listens to me. He's learning. And so he continued to pour into me. Even after I left that organization, he continued to pour into my family. He was one of the people that was there when my, uh, my aunt died of cancer. Dick Loazzo is a mighty man. He knew what it was like to pour out his best for the people that he was leading. You know, this weekend we're celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. You know, and he's another person who knew what it meant to be willing to sacrifice for those he leads. All of the time, all of the energy, all of the things that he did to try to bring racial unity in our country... And on April 3rd of 1968, he was in Memphis, Tennessee, and he gave a talk where one of the things that he said as he imagined what this good future would look like, he stood up and said, I just want to do God's will. See, everything that he was sacrificing as a leader was actually because of the leader that he followed. He was a Christ follower, and he believed that everything that he was doing even calling people on his side to be able to forgive the ones who had hurt them was because of who Jesus was. He said, I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as people will get to the promised land. The next day, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed. When I hear that, I think, I wonder if he thought it was worth it. And then you find this quote from the night before where he knew, he knew that death was on the line. He knew that he may not get there, but he believed that it was the mighty thing that God had called him to do and he was willing to sacrifice whatever it took. Now, for you and I, it may not come to death. Not everyone is called to something that requires a sacrifice of life. But sometimes it's almost as hard to sacrifice my time, to sacrifice my talents, to sacrifice my resources, to offer those things up to God as my leader. But to be able to do that, you've got to understand one more thing about this drink offering. So are you ready to see how deep the Bethlehem well goes? 
When we talk about this drink offering being poured out, when you think about the cup, there is a time in Jesus' life that we know of as the Last Supper. Do you know the words that Jesus spoke when he sat at the Last Supper? Look at this from Luke 22. He's at dinner with his closest friends and followers. What we now know as like communion or the Lord's Supper that we celebrate. And this is what he said. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus came to be a drink offering for you. You see, Jesus is the one who breaks through enemy lines to bring you what you need the most, even when you don't know it, what you would long for the most if you recognized how great it was. He broke through enemy lines to bring you forgiveness. For every scoundrel thing you may have done, like David or different than David, and to give you a relationship with the Heavenly Father, who no matter what the emergency is, he will always be the first one there. Jesus poured out his own life, a drink offering to lift you up and honor you to God. Jesus is not only the one who runs behind enemy lines, but he is also the king who sacrificed for you. See, that's what's unique about Christianity. God loved you so much, instead of telling you to get it right, and he might let you in, he sacrificed for you because he loves you. So your key takeaway today is to pour out your best for Jesus because he poured out his life for you. See, both of those mighty acts, those are loving actions. When you understand that he loved you, then you want to pour out your best for him to love the people around you and to love him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are our highest hope. Jesus, thank you for pouring out your life for us. I pray that even as we sit here this morning, we think about the things we dream of, the things we hope for, Lord, that we would find those in you, that we would understand your sacrifice for us, that when we go do that for other people, it would not be to try to earn your love, but just because we are so thankful for the love that you showered on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A little trivia on that song. I sang that song in our very first public horizon service in April of 2001. That's, that's crazy, isn't it? I looked just like this, except I had a ponytail and my youthful exuberance hadn't been beaten out of me yet. But other than that, everything's just the same. So we're so glad you joined us this morning. We'll continue uh, next week with our Lionhearted series. Have a great afternoon. Thank you.